And that really kind of solidified that direction for me that as you advance as a yogi, it is physical, yes, but it, it can't be just that. What is going on, yogis? Thank you for tuning in to Dharma Talk. This is episode number 18. And boy, I'm really pushing it this week. It is Wednesday night, and here I am burning the midnight oil to get this podcast episode polished, published, and ready to stream into your earpieces. But I do it for you because I love you, and I appreciate you coming back each and every week to join me for these conversations. This week is a special episode because this is the very first time that I'm interviewing a pair. I have two guests this week, um, so you got a twofer. These two travel together, teach together, do all their stuff together, so it's really um, a natural fit that they came on to share the mic. It's Ida Joe and Scott Lamps of Ghosh Yoga. These two have really kind of put the Ghosh Yoga College in Calcutta, India on the map for a lot of um, us modern day yoga practitioners on the, in the West. And they know a lot about the history, and that's something that we really talk about on this episode. They're not just practitioners, but actually historians or historiographers of yoga. And they've put together a number of resources, practical manuals, but also history resources for how this yoga came about and became popular in the U.S., So you're going to hear all about that on this episode. We talk about, um, first of all, how a traditional understanding of Dharma really contradicts with the American dream. But we also talk about how, you know, you can reconcile those two things and try your best to live a yogic life in modern day. We talk about their journey, how they stumbled into the historiography of yoga basically by accident, and then their journey to Calcutta, which paved the way for exploration and connection that neither Ida nor Scott had planned or expected. And then we talk about some of the things they learned there, what an individualized, prescribed approach to yoga really looks like, as opposed to what we do here normally, but how yoga teachers in the U.S. can apply that mentality, that modality, that approach to their group classes to maximum benefit. So I can't wait for you to hear all the wisdom from Ida and Scott. You're going to get into it right after these announcements. Yogis, on July 9th, that's less than two weeks away, we are kicking off the second advanced teacher training at Lighthouse Yoga School. I'm going to be assisting Jared McCann with this program, along with some of the rest of the staff of Lighthouse, and we would love to have you. If you've been sitting on the fence on this for financial reasons, get in touch with us. Send me a message, get in contact with Tony Lupinacci from Lighthouse, and let's talk. Because at this point, we've got a couple spots left, and we're more interested in filling it up with good people and good energy than counting every last dollar. So we do have financial payment plans. We've got work-study arrangements available. Don't let that be what stops you. Just put in an application, no commitment necessary, and write Henry Wins in in the referral area, and you'll get a guaranteed 10% off of your tuition. Next, if you're not really interested in becoming a yoga teacher, You can still do the teacher training, but we also have another option for you, which is a 30-hour intensive over the Labor Day weekend. Uh, This one is four days of intense practice with posture clinics, um, yoga philosophy training, and lots of meditation as well. This is a great option if you don't want to make the time or financial investment of a teacher training, but you really want to deepen your practice. And then the last thing I want to share with you is also in July, in between the two modules of the teacher training, I'm going to be in Chicago for the We Are Yoga Vacation. It's taking place at 105F, Chicago's original hot yoga studio. But they're going to be yoga classes of all different styles, different teachers teaching all the different classes. And we're going to take excursions too, so it'll be fun. We've got Pitchfork Music Festival going on, Chicago Cubs games, if that appeals to you. So here's the deal. I've got a special 10% discount for you, my Dharma Talk listeners, my followers, for any or all of these three events. 
You can apply that 10% to your tuition for teacher training or the immersion or a four-day pass at 105F for the Chicago vacation. So to get that discount code and register for the events, head on over to henrywins.com events. What's your purpose? What's your vision? What mark will you leave on this planet long after you're gone? I'm Henry Winslow, and you're listening to Dharma Talk, the only podcast where I interview inspirational yogis on how they're changing the world in their own unique ways. Whether you're still searching for your purpose or already walking the path, I hope these stories get you excited to live your dharma. Hello, Dharma Talk community, and welcome back to another episode of Dharma Talk. Today, I've got Ida Joe and Scott Lamps on the show. Ida and Scott are yoga acharyas, or masters of yoga. They are perpetual students of the traditions, methods, and science of yoga, and they travel internationally to teach. They work closely with Gosha's Yoga College in Kolkata, India, and have published three practice manuals describing more than 100 beginning, intermediate, and advanced asanas, pranayamas, and prachihara techniques, plus an in-depth volume about modifying the 26 postures we know as Bikram Yoga. Their research, along with Jerome Armstrong into the history of the Ghosh lineage, has yielded four publications from Bishnu Ghosh, Dr. Gauri Shankar Mukherjee, and Buddha Bose. Thank you guys so much for coming on. I'm excited to do my first interview with two guests together, so we'll see how this goes. How are you guys doing? We're great. Yeah, thanks for having us, Henry. It's my pleasure, yeah. All right, well, you know... If you've been listening to the show, then you might know that we start with the exact same question every time, uh, and today's going to be no different. So that question is, what does the word dharma mean to you, and what is your dharma as you understand it today? All right. <laughs> Getting started with the big ones. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that that's a really interesting word, and I think it's really interesting how it has uh, begun, begun to be applied to like a modern society and especially American culture, I think of it in terms, you know, to the best of my knowledge as the kind of orthodox Hindu ways of living the laws and the rights, depending on, you know, what caste you are and what system of life that you were brought up in. And, um, you know, I, I know that it has like so many modern, applications for the word, but I personally try to kind of think of it as it was intended and um, apply it to a study of the kind of history and philosophy of yoga. And so for that, for that reason, it doesn't necessarily apply to me in my life personally. I know that it's, um, you know, it, it has come to mean like the duties with which we carry out our work. Um, but I don't really use that word when I think about my own life's work um, because I try to, like I said, kind of study it in a very philosophical way and a very historical way. Um, I don't think that it's, you know, bad or wrong or whatever to apply that to our own life. But for me personally, it doesn't um, super resonate in that way. And I really like to try to study the history uh, as kind of authentically as I can, if that's even possible. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I appreciate that. Um, I haven't heard that answer yet from any of the other guests, but I can't say that I'm totally surprised to hear that from you, knowing, you know, where you situate yourself with the study of yoga. You guys are both historians, so I'm really looking forward to kind of getting your perspective on that. And I do respect the decision to sort of contextualize the language of history in its proper setting. Yeah, for sure. I think it's it's a tough, you know, because obviously I think both of us really believe that that yoga should evolve. And obviously it has evolved, especially in the past hundred years, quite drastically to be, you know, a modern physical practice. Um, so I'm, I try to really walk a fine line between letting that happen and letting it reach a lot of people. And I mean, not that I could control it anyway, but, you know, really kind of doing my part in, in, helping that happen, but also at the same context, providing some, you know, just more historical information. 
Well, yeah, because the, the thing that we find as we go out and we teach and as we study more is that the, the meaning of so many of these words, um, Dharma among them, we take them for granted now in the 21st century. We, you know, we say like Dharma means X. Um, and my teacher said that it meant this. And my teacher's teacher said that it meant exactly the same thing. But even that amount of lineage, like two generations or three generations of lineage, only takes us back to 1950 at the earliest. And the huge transformation that the meaning of these practices underwent in like uh, around 1900, like anywhere from 1850 to 1930 or so, like the, the meaning of these words and the philosophies had this huge transformation and so what we think of as dharma now and what we think of even as like yoga now that we have taken for granted for the last 50 years um, is very different from if you look at texts from 200 years ago or 500 years ago or 2000 years ago. And so we like it's it's a balancing act that we really try to perform you know it's it, it ends up being like there is no right there is no one answer and the more that we study and the more that we learn it's like um things don't get simpler they get more complicated and so we end up with uh like the more you study dharma ends up having five meanings instead of just one and the more you look into it then like oh holy cow here's a sixth completely independent uh meaning to the word and we can't discount them because they they were as valid at their time period as um, the ones that we hold now are valid for our time period. And it's a really interesting mix of culture, too. You know, like we were even talking the other day, the idea of, of the American dream and like what being an American is, is actually, you know, in direct conflict with the idea of duty as it pertains to your gender and your caste, you know, <laughs> that like I'll, that. I'll bite. Let's, let's hear how, how so. Yeah. Well, I mean, here we have the idea that you can come from anywhere, you know, and you can mm. be anything. And that's how we, that's what the America is, right? It's like the, the land, greatest quality of this place. Yeah. It's the land of opportunity. And if you think about, um, like duty in the more, historic context and the the more orthodox hindu context it is very much the opposite right like the the bhagavad gita the idea that you have to fight because that is your duty even if you don't want to right and so i think that the the play of those two things is really interesting and then how we um as westerners incorporate these ideas of discipline and duty and work in a Western context is, is super fascinating. And I think it's, it's great that you explore that idea as the first thing in your podcast, right? Like, what does this mean to you? Because like Scott was saying, it does have a lot of significant historic meaning. Um, but you know, we've kind of put it in this culture where you can make your own duty, you can make your own work you can make your own ideas about that. And that's a really fascinating mix of culture and history. Yeah, that's a really cool idea of like, what does it mean to make your own dharma or decide what that means for you? Like our teacher, one of our teachers at the ashram when we studied um, just recently this past year, uh, a swami, when they talk about dharma and duty, um, like Dharma is such an advanced concept in, in like yogic, like the earliest yogic texts, like the Vedas and stuff that you can't, like a person can't really understand Dharma and they can't, much less can you understand what your own duty is. And that's kind of what makes it duty is that we don't understand, uh, we don't understand it personally and we just have to carry it out. Mm -hmm. and um, our teacher said that there are only two ways that you can understand your own dharma, and both of them are rare. Um, one is if when you become fully realized, like a fully self-realized person um, can, can witness 
and understand their own dharma. And I personally don't think that I am there yet. Um, and the other person who can understand your dharma is your guru, like a, a fully realized teacher of yours who can uh, see you more clearly than you see yourself. But otherwise, yeah, otherwise they're just like, like any ideas of duty that we have for ourselves are generally just constructions of our own mind and their ideas that we have for ourselves. And in that way, they can actually be as detrimental as they are beneficial. Yeah, I, I can see that. And, you know, I think it's an interesting idea that we can be serving our purpose, serving our duty without necessarily knowing the ultimate outcome or even ultimately the, you know, the path that we're on because we're so ingrained in it ourselves and an outside perspective might have a better sense of what we're doing than even we do ourselves. So, you know, I, I can tell even if, you know, I mean, you guys probably know this too, but you don't want to use, you know, inappropriate semantics, but I would say that you're doing a lot of great work right now to ask these kinds of questions and to, reconcile the differences between yoga of the past yoga of today and find a way to merge those things in a way that serves our modern society so I'll, I'll take you to kind of the next step in applying that dharma and ask what does your personal yoga practice look like because i can tell that it's definitely interwoven for you guys so how how has your yoga practice supported you in all of the good work that you're doing oh my gosh um, that's a great question. Well, it changes so much from time to time. And that's, I think, one of the like scary things about it. And um, But it's also one of the things that's been really interesting for me personally. Um, I started practicing uh, the Bikram class, Bikram's class, and did that for many years. And then um, got interested in kind of the postures beyond that practice um, and started practicing those. And then was really lucky to kind of start doing this work with the history and with the philosophy and was just opened up to more study of yoga um, and learning about it from, from different perspectives. And, and so now in terms of actual practice, I do a lot of pranayama, a little bit of asana, and then, um, you know, some other like fitness based stuff to kind of support that. But I would say that in general, my practice is more study, right? It's like it's practice, but it's also complementing that with with learning and um, trying to give that equal footing as the physical practice itself. Because um, I think that's really for me, it's been that's been really, really important. And Scott mentioned um, this last year, we were able to study at the Shivananda Ashram for a month. And that really kind of solidified that direction for me that as you advance as a yogi, it's, it is physical, yes, but it, it can't be just that um, because that, you know, brings so many issues with the body and the self and how we perceive our practice. And so the complement of study and learning and the subtler practices is so important. Yeah. And, and you mentioned earlier that as you start to try to answer some of these questions that come up, you don't get answers, you get more questions. So that, that's a natural <laughs> course to take is just to start getting more interested in this scholarly study. Um, yeah. what, what does that look like? You know, are you reading texts? Are you meeting new teachers? How do you, how do you study yoga apart from the practice? Yeah, the, the best way that I have found is is to follow the curiosity. Um, like it started with with uh, the physical practice. I think most of us come in through the physical practice door or the meditation door. Um, but then it, like I got interested in anatomy. And so I started reading anatomy texts. I started taking anatomy courses. I started... Uh, applying that to physical yoga practices and seeing the effects. And strangely, that led to um, like physiology, where you start dealing with the nervous system and how the body's affected. And 
the parallels between the nervous system and the brain and uh, pranayama and pratyahara practice are, are quite striking. And then when it comes to um, like philosophical study and historical study, we got into it totally by accident, um, a fluke and a stroke of luck um, in which Jerome Jerome Armstrong, this man who discovered the missing Buddha Bose manuscript. I don't know if you or your listeners, you must know about it. The, they, Buddha Bose was a great yogi in the 1930s. He was the first great um, yoga student of Yogananda and Bishnu Ghosh. And in the late 1930s, they put a book together um, of 84 postures and 10 mudras, complete with big old pictures and explanations, instructions of how to do the postures. And from this big manuscript, they pared it down and they published a little tiny volume one that only had 24 postures in it. And so a handful of yogis in this lineage, especially um, are aware of Buddha Bose's volume one publication, but his volume two, his big manuscript had never been published. And no one knew if it existed, including his own family members and his own students. And Jerome, who we happened to meet um, while we were studying with Tony Sanchez, um, Jerome is, uh, has an uncanny ability to find things that have no business being found. Like he, <laughs> he is an archeologist of extraordinary skills and one day he emailed us and he said, I think I found the Buddha Bose manuscript, you know, and I think it took us several reads through of that to be like, wait a second, you're, you're talking about something that's been missing for 75 years and none of us even knew it existed. Um, and then when it turned out that he had found it, um, he really wanted to go to India, to Calcutta um, and meet Buddha Bose's family meet Ghosh's family and do a tiny bit of research and recon um, before publishing the book. And he just wanted company. And so he asked us if we wanted to go and it struck us as uh, a remarkable once in a lifetime opportunity. And so uh, we said yes before really thinking about it too hard. You know, we were like this, we just have to do it and uh, we'll make it happen. And then um, once you go to Calcutta, once you go to India, the place is so rich and the place is so um, full of life and full of um, knowledge and spirit that from there we learned so much about Buddha Bose. Um, we met the families of so many different yogis in this tradition, including Buddha, including um, Ghosh including Gauri Shankar, who we met his nephew, like we're now kind of friends with his nephew. And that led us to, to stay with your question of like, how do you get into the history? Mm -hmm. um, Gauri Shankar's nephew um, permitted us to publish, to translate and publish a book that he had written about the 84 asanas and he was a German doctor. And so the Buddha Bose project very directly led into another historical project. And, you know, you start reading about these things um, and every yogi mentions the yoga sutras, every yogi mentions the Hatha Pradipika. Um, and you start to um, like, oh, I want to read these for myself because everybody talks about them oh, ever so slightly differently. And at some point for me, it, I thought, I just want to see what it actually says. Um, and then yeah. you, you find the text and you read what it actually says. And then to your point um, from a minute ago that that more exploration leads to more questions. You know, you find that each translation of the Hatha Pradipika has a slightly different explanation. And there are different commentaries from different points in history. And, um, and commentaries on the commentaries. Right. <laughs> Exactly. And so that really leads, um, I find that stuff, I think we both find that stuff really interesting. And it does become a rabbit hole where you just, 
like once you know one of the explanations and you find out that there's a different one, I kind of want to know what that is just so I have better context. And especially because when you're a teacher, students bring up questions and they ask you things that you don't know. And students have different perspectives and they, ha they have different, uh, they come from different places. And so as a teacher, having the greatest amount of, like when it, you want to be able to say when it, when a student says like, I read this in this translation, you want to be able to say, I know what you're talking about and this is um, how to think about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think that's a, a really important point to make is, you know, you, if you intend to come from a place of authority, you should be, you know, well-read, well-researched and not just go with the first thing that you see. You kind of need to survey the options and know what resonates with you. And I think that applies not only to yoga texts, but anything that you intend to, you know, feel strongly and feel confidently about. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, apart from reading all the different texts and learning from the different interpreters and scholars of yoga, I think there's a big difference between doing that, you know, the secondary research and actually going out to India and meeting with these families. That's that's a powerful experience. Can you talk a little bit more about what what that was like for you? Yeah, for sure. I, um, it was really life changing. And I don't say that lightly because I think that's it's something we can, you know, throw around kind of easily. Like that was transformative. That changed my life. But this really was. And the first trip uh, that we went to India with Jerome, I think we were just open to anything. Like I hadn't been to a place like that before in my life. And I didn't know what was going to happen. We were basically showing up in Calcutta with this manuscript and trying to like knock on the doors of Buddha Bose's family and see if they would... A, open the door, <laughs> B, let us in, and C, be okay with the fact that we had this thing that they probably didn't about their own family member. And so it was very uh, strange and exciting and interesting. And that the first trip that we were there just kind of flew by because we were in Calcutta, which is a very overwhelming place to be. And we were carrying out this very like strange task of, of trying to put this project together. Um, Before you go on, yeah. how, so I take it that, that Jerome did not get the manuscript by way of the family. If you believe you had reason to believe that they might not even uh, believe it was yeah. real or, or that it was somehow, you know, falsified. Yeah, exactly. So what happened was he threw a lot of, um, like internet research and internet searches found reference to it in the States. Um, and it had actually been sold at an art auction in the early nineties, eighties or nineties. So a couple decades ago. Um, and he didn't know for sure that, that this is what the internet search was referring to. It was just talking about, you know, like a, a man in yoga postures and things like that. Um, but the timeline kind of, matched up, um, in terms of what, when they were saying the photos were taken. And so he actually traced the manuscript to Connecticut where an art, uh, historian had bought the manuscripts because all of the photos, um, were very historic and very valuable. And so uh, because Jerome lives on the East coast, he was like, Hey, can I contact this guy and maybe he'll let me see it. And so he did that and he ended up driving to Connecticut. And sure enough, this man has had for decades, this manuscript from Buddha Bose that, um, that even Buddha Bose's family didn't know existed. Right. Um, and, and the art collector probably had no idea of the significance of it or who this person was. And no, it took, you know, the connection of someone who had a little bit of the knowledge of that history to be able to actually identify it. For sure. Exactly. Um, and what was very lucky is that particular man was very open to it being published um, so that it could be kind of shared with people. And in time, um, much of the family of Buddha Bose became very interested in it being published. And um, even one of Buddha Bose's grandsons helped a lot with the publication, um, which was really special. You know, it's a it's a difficult thing to kind of walk into somebody's 
house and their family and their culture and be an outsider and, and have those conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, but over time, you know, we've developed really close relationships with a lot of people in Calcutta and it's been really special. I think for me, especially cause I've been going back, uh, twice a year since that happened a few years ago, I'm working really closely with Muktamala Mitra, who's the granddaughter of Bishnu Ghosh and who runs Ghosh's college. And so I've uh, been able to help them maintain a teacher training program for Westerners to go and actually live at Ghosh's college and um, Mm -hmm. really be immersed in the culture and the neighborhood and the way in which they teach yoga there, which is um, very different than what we do here. Uh, So it's, yeah, it's been, it has been a wild ride. To say the yeah, least. <laughs> and and turned into sort of a different uh, whole thing, a different opportunity than you had anticipated going over there. Absolutely. When I think of what we were, who we were, what we were doing at that point, um, like it just we seems like such babies. I guess this goes on for the rest of your life. Every time you kind of look back at what you were doing, but I mean, we were just like we just liked to practice, and we were curious about it, and um, I think the reason we jumped at going the first time was because we thought literally it would be a once in a lifetime opportunity. Well, we want to go to India. We hope to at some day. So we might as well just do it now because we have a good opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we at no, had no idea at that point that we would be back six months later and three months after that. And six months after that, you know, that this was just going to be the first of, many trips and many relationships and it's really spread in a, a beautiful way that, yeah, that really is beautiful. I mean, you never, you never know what sort of doors will open when you just say yes to an opportunity that feels a little bit mysterious. Yeah, totally. I mean, this was, yeah, for me, such proof of that. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's just, you had no idea and to, to what we've been able to see and do and, live at Gosha's college. And I, I know the woman that sells water in North Calcutta, you know, I can't, we don't speak the same language, but we know each other, yeah. you know, we're happy to see each other and, um, to know my way around the North Calcutta neighborhood and be able to like tell the taxi drivers they're not going the right way. You know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. hysterical. Like I just yeah. have to laugh because like it's such a foreign place and it's, become really familiar in a, a really cool way. I never thought it would happen. So you guys, you guys have the, the multiple historical projects going on. You've released several volumes and, um, and you're also doing this work with the Ghosh College. Um, my, my understanding of what the work is that's happening over there is it's a bit more uh, medicinal and therapeutic than the yoga that we typically practice over here in the U.S. But I'd love to hear your take um, on on what the unique you know proposition of the Ghosh College is and, and why someone from the U.S. might be interested in going over there. Sure, yeah. So w- what they've always taught at Ghosh's College is uh, a therapeutic kind of individualized way of doing yoga. Um, and most of it is very, very simple. There's just very simple movement based exercises that we now kind of have as physical therapy or we think of as physical therapy. Um, and then a couple of simple asanas that people practice. And you, if you were a patient or a student, you would go into Gosha's college or a different institution and you would actually meet with the instructor or the educator and you would be given a very specific set of practices. So it would be completely unique to you based on what issues you have. Say you don't sleep very well and your right hip bothers you. But besides that, you're healthy. Um, And, you know, so somebody would give you exercises that would help you sleep ideally, but wouldn't aggravate your hip or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, And you would practice those to really specifically target what you need. And it's a really fascinating way of looking at yoga because it's very simple 
and there, of course, there have been over time, there have been great yogis that did very um, advanced and difficult postures, difficult practices, but those were really done for show and for to kind of gain interest in the college and, and then normal would come to the college and then they would get these yoga prescriptions. And those again would be very simple. So from a Western perspective, it's really interesting to learn about that and to see that because we have this group mentality, right? Like we, a yoga class here is so different. Everybody does the same thing. Um, it's actually quite challenging physically compared to what they do in India. And regardless of whether that's a way in which you're interested in teaching, it opens your mind, you know, just like we were saying with the texts, it's just a completely different way to approach it. And for that reason, it's really enlightening um, because you then have to kind of juggle that with what you do, with what you see, with what other people do here and, and figure out, you know, like what you think is best and what works and what you want to teach your students if you're a teacher. And it just gives you another perspective, another tool in your tool belt. Can yeah, I jump in? please, please, please do. I remember when, um, when we went to Calcutta, it was the second time I think. And when we studied the therapeutic yoga, uh, at the Gosha's college. And I remember the, the paradigm shift in my mind being quite significant because as a Western yoga teacher, I went over there thinking of yoga as like, a series of postures or like there are these 20 to 50 maybe a hundred positions that everybody should do or this is what yoga is and um, the students there's not really such thing as a student it's really more of a class you know you show up as a teacher and there are five to fifty people in your class and you kind of address the classroom and you guide them through um, either a set series or whatever you have decided for that day. And the relationship between the like the teacher and the yoga and the students is is very specific in the West. Um, hopefully I'll make this clearer. But and then so when we go over to India and we studied the therapeutic, like the individualized prescriptive yoga, we broke down every single posture and it's like, these are the, uh, what the posture does. These are the benefits of it. But importantly, every single posture also has contraindications like, um, things that you, if you have this condition, like if you have high blood pressure or if you have, um, spinal issues or if you have, uh, you know, any, any sort of, um, ailment, like, there are certain postures that you should not do. And as you start to learn these contraindications about each posture, as you start to learn the ins and outs um, generally of like the ailments people have and what they should avoid and what they should be doing, the, I remember my perspective of the, of the practice and teaching shift so dramatically because then it became like each student literally is their own universe and and uh, everybody has their own strengths they have their own weaknesses they have what they need to work on they have what they need to avoid and that little set of things dictates what their practice should be um, and that is completely a different universe from the person standing next to them uh -huh. um, and so a room full of 20 people is no longer a class of people, uh, like a classroom. This is now 20 individual students. And um, that is how I've seen it ever since we got back. But I, I remember that when I, when I first went over there, that wasn't how my brain worked. So how do you, how do you take that new information, that new perspective, and still come in and deliver a class that, you know, is helpful and beneficial to a large group of diverse people. Yeah. I mean, that's totally the trick. Right. And at first it was, it was almost like, I don't know if I can teach anything. Right. Cause I like, now I have this other, this other idea about how it should be done and it conflicts or it seems to conflict with how things 
are being done. And so you just are kind of like deer in headlights. I don't like, what can I possibly give to somebody? What can I possibly teach? But, you know, there are generally practices and postures and breathing exercises that are good for most people. Mm -hmm. And so if that's kind of your starting point, right? And I think hopefully that's what a lot of yoga classes are in general, are like pretty good for most people. And when we have more time with people, which um, we're really lucky to be able to do like even workshops, which are several hours long instead of, you know, an hour yoga class or whatever it might be, or we do like longer weeks. Um, and in those situations, we're able to kind of zero in, like we start from sort of a level playing field. Okay, everybody, this is kind of a general practice, but then we really try to encourage students to go in slightly different directions. Um, you know, mo more therapeutic when it, when someone has an injury and more challenging when somebody's, you know, can probably take on a different posture or different variation that suits them. And we try to really encourage that and, um, also teach specific classes or specific workshops that have a focus like this is for back pain and so come if you have back pain and then we try to address it that in that way which even that you know is complicated again the more you do the more <laughs> the more there is yeah. to do you know the more there is to know but um we try to to just not be afraid to to let people go in different directions i think is the best way to think about it yeah, and, and I think that's a smart way to kind of take one of the core values of what you learned over in, in Calcutta and apply it at the scale and in the context of yoga studios in the U.S. You know, you took this idea of solving or providing relief to a specific ailment and then attract the students who are looking for that rather than just say, this is yoga. If you like yoga, come do this. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing when we pretty much without fail, no matter what city we're in, no matter where in the country or the world or whatever, wherever, um, we will have like several workshops that we offer and there will be what the studio thinks will do well, that what people will come to. Maybe it's advanced, maybe it's a, uh, kind of Bikram style workshop, whatever. And without fail back pain, is always is always <laughs> the biggest class seriously and it's yeah. all what's so interesting is it's also i would say the most rewarding because when you can have somebody come up to you and say like wow i could tie my shoes after i left the class and i couldn't before or um you know if you see somebody the next day and they're like i could get out of bed in the morning like that means the world because yeah. this like it basic, made a difference. Yeah, it made a difference. These are basic things that people are living with that cause them so much pain and frustration. And if you can help even just a little bit with that, it's it's really rewarding as a teacher. Yeah, um, I've got two follow ups. One to kind of backtrack a little bit when you were talking about um, people coming in and getting a personalized prescription. I'm curious, uh, is that limited to? you know, physical health or do people come in and say, I can't hold down a job or, you know, I, I can't find a, a partner. Like it is that sort of thing that people come to Ghosh for or traditionally came to Ghosh for, or is it specifically like a replacement for the doctor? That's such a good question. I would say it's mostly, uh, for the doctor type, you know, physical things, but there's definitely an element of high stress fatigue, concentration. Uh, concentration, focus. Uh -huh. And for those things, there are a lot of like breathing exercises or um, pranayama techniques that people would then practice. Right. But it's I don't know of, I mostly physical. Of any like lifestyle um, kind of therapy. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, a good, that's, a good that's a, such a good idea. Well, you know, the reason I ask is because anyone who's practiced yoga for uh, a a significant period of time realizes that, you know, there's more to the benefits than the physical stuff. You start to, yeah, get the clarity in your mind and, you know, there are even psycho-spiritual benefits. So, absolutely. I, but many of us, you know, at the same time, what attracts us to yoga in the first place is the physical side. So it, it makes sense. Yeah. I think it's, that's the type of thing that 
yeah, it could be developed with the right people, but for the most part, people are just, you know, have poor digestion and can't sleep. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's what yoga has come to mean in our culture too, is it's so physical. Yeah. Um, and it's becoming more so it seems, you know, now yoga studios are aerobics classes and Pilates classes and, um, high interval, high intensity interval training and stuff like that. And that's becoming intermingled with yoga. Yeah. But if you, if you're into that stuff, you should, uh, you should really pursue that. That's a really fascinating idea. Yeah. Cause there are people, you know, like yourself that are doing great work to continue to, to expand the conversation. I'll say, you know, that have practices that have evolved past purely physical. And it's super interesting for, for people like you and teachers to explore that and teach that. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I know you guys are, are the same, cut from the same cloth. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to hear another story now because we've been talking about a lot of this like really, um, I don't know, optimistic is the wrong word, really like powerful um, moments of change for you that you've appreciated. But I know it hasn't always been sunshine and rainbows. There's been some challenges along the way. So can you take us to a moment where you hit a wall either with one of your research projects or with your teaching? And then what did you do to get through that? Oh yeah, sure. A couple of years ago, um, yoga journal was looking for a duo to travel around the country and like interview yoga teachers and go to yoga studios and kind of report back via social media and a blog and stuff like that. It was going to be like a yoga lifestyle kind of thing. And it was going to be a year long. You got to travel everywhere. You got to meet people in the yoga community. Um, And we thought we were perfect for that um, because there are two of us already. And because we were pretty proficient yogis, Um, we were experienced travelers. We were actually had um, a good amount of writing experience. And, and so we contacted them, you know, like we did the application and they very, very quickly replied to us and they were like, we think you guys are the ones, um, we need you to, you know, we had a phone interview or two and then they were like, okay, we're going to bring you up to Boulder. Um, was it Boulder somewhere in Colorado where their headquarters is. And, um, so you can meet the team and then we'll put it all in place. And so we were just super excited. Um, you know, we like cleared our schedule for the next year or whatever it was. And as the date got closer that we were supposed to go to fly out to Colorado, um, they got slower and slower in returning our emails. And to the point where the point came when we were like, um, Hey, uh, is everything okay? You know, uh, this, this doesn't seem, this doesn't seem right. And, and then until one day the, the, they dropped the bomb on us that another duo had appeared that also had videography experience because we were going to have to tour around the country with a separate videographer to capture it. And this duo had the capability to also video themselves. And so we had been um, essentially dropped from the from the running, and that was a that was a bad day. <laughs> yeah, because um, you had been planning on it for some time at that point. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it just was made out to be that that all that was left was kind of the technical stuff, but all the technicalities. But but we were the we were for sure the ones for the job, which is just a good lesson and it's never over till it's over because yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we kind of assumed that that was the case, you know? And, um, it was one of those moments that was such a letdown and so disappointing. Um, but there was nothing to do, but just try to get over that and, and think about what would be next, you right. know, cause now we had all that time and exactly, we had, yeah. we had all of this space to kind of, do something different but it was it was very disappointing yeah we were convinced that it was like that it was the next step for us and it was going to be a platform to the next level and it was going to be a new set of connections and like we're going to meet everybody and we were really excited and um confident that this was like a huge huge step forward um for us and then it 
pretty quickly got pulled, the rug got pulled out from under us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then when you did have that whole, you know, you, you had planned a year for that, right? So yeah. what, what did you do with that year when suddenly your plans were, were pulled out from underneath you? We, we were like, you know what? If there's no structure, we're not answering to anybody. We can do anything we want. Like, what do we think is missing? What do we want to provide for people? Well, what is there that um, can give great benefit to the yoga community, to practitioners? And so we really tried to tease out the answers to those questions. And and I think it was also a little bit because we were uh, so disappointed that we really wanted to come up with something that was like, ah, oh, just even just so good. Um, and so we had, a, we had that kind of drive behind us. And so what we did, and it's something we continue to do is we were really inspired by the fact that anytime you're an advancing yogi and you've practiced and you want to learn more, or you want to do more, you want to experience more, you have to take a teacher training, right? Like that's like what the continuing, continuing education for a yoga person is, is teacher training. And we're like, you know, not everybody wants to be a teacher. And especially now, the more that we teach, they become more separate. Like teaching is one thing, but being a practitioner is another thing. And Mm -hmm. both to be cultivated. Um, And so we decided to offer uh, something called practice week, which is just practice. And um, there are, you know, there are definitely some people that do things like that, um, like Isak Garcia has done his Jedi Fight Club and people get together and practice. But we wanted it to not necessarily be really advanced, um, but just to be for people that were, you know, pretty committed to, to practicing yoga to come and learn more and offer history, offer philosophy, offer pranayama. Again, like let it be, have some idea of the structure, but let it be kind of organic depending on that, uh, again, that individualized context, like whatever people are interested in and where their practice is at. And so that after getting turned down by the yoga journal job, we several months later um, offered something we called practice week. And we, it was kind of to prove to ourselves that we could do any, you know, we could do something (laughs) even though we were turned down by that job. So we put it out there and we were like, probably zero people will Mm -hmm. sign up for this. And that's fine. You know, like if zero people sign up for us, either we'll just practice for a week or we'll do something else. Um, (laughs) And then like a couple people signed up for it and we were like, holy crap, I guess we're going to do this. And that was kind of the beginning of our, yeah, of our teaching in a lot of ways that it was like, well, there's, there's this community building, um, that are interested in other things and interested in continuing their practice. And that's the community that like we kind of associate ourselves in. And I think just by opening ourselves up to that, you know, we've been able to find that community a little bit. And that's really meaningful to us because, you know, we've been able to meet a lot of people and um, just like the yoga journal job, we've been able to travel, we've been able to meet people, but it's been a little bit more on, I guess I'll say our terms or things that we're really interested in. And so it, it has definitely all worked out. Yeah. And you know, you, you mentioned other people have done this before. This isn't like this brand new novel idea, but even so when Isak Garcia does it, it's different from when you do it. He's teaching different things. He appeals to different people. And I think that's an important thing to embrace. You know, we, we're all, you know, all of us, we're all yoga teachers. That doesn't mean that we're offering the exact same thing. And for you guys to create this program and offer something to a specific group of people that are attracted to what you have to teach, all the philosophy, all the history, that's, that is something that's brand new that didn't exist before. So I think you can feel very good about that. Thanks. Okay, um, let's move on to one more question um, before the prana round. So the last question that I'm going to ask you is, apart from getting your message out on this podcast today, what are you doing to live your dharma? I think it's, for me, it's continuing to walk the walk myself. I mean, I, I really feel that the teaching, 
or being out there publicly in any way only comes from my own experience and my own practice. And I can only teach what I know and I can only share, you know, my own experiences. And I think in order to lead students, you have to have been to those places yourself. Um, and you have to be kind of beyond those places in some ways in your own teaching. Otherwise, you can't effectively make sense of the practices for people. And so I'm, I really strive to be a better uh, teacher by being a better practitioner and or just a more experienced practitioner, you know, to keep with it, um, which is really where the discipline comes in because, it's, you know, it's not always easy. It's not always what I want to do. Um, but to stay with it and develop my own practice and my own relationship to the yoga. And then from there, decide, you know, what I think is important for people to know and what I, what I see is lacking from people's own practices or their own body or their own, you know, their own life. And if, if at that point I can offer anything that will be helpful to them. Yeah, I would say I am seeking my dharma, if that's a thing, if that, if that makes any sense. I don't claim to know what my purpose is or what my duty is. And at this point, the only thing I can do is follow my curiosity and follow the instructions of the teachers that I respect. And my hope is and my belief is that that one day and I think that it's going to be it's still going to be 20 years from now. Um, perhaps my dharma will be revealed to me, you know, my, my purpose in this life that I will be, I'll be able to see it, but I don't claim that I am, I have that ability today. And so all I can do is, um, study the things that I'm interested in. And I guess I do feel a, I do feel a responsibility to, to teach to like to tell people some things because when I mean I'm sure you guys all have this experience when you learn things and when you through your practice you find you like stumble across uh, you know you make these discoveries in yourself about the nature of the mind or about the nature of like your relationship with life um, it does feel important to share them because so many people don't seem to have access to these and and it becomes like almost vital to uh, to share them if possible i think that yeah. it's a free slope because it becomes it can become egocentric really easily i mean i realize when i say that it sounds like i know this and no one else knows this which is um not the same thing no i understand what you mean and i think everybody has something to share with one another it's not like a you're the teacher, I'm the student. It's, we all exchange these roles at any given time. And yeah, if, if you find, if you come across something, if you discover something, it does feel good. It feels like a service to be able to share it. So I definitely appreciate everything you just said. And I also appreciate, you know, this idea that years down the line, when you can look back, hindsight is 2020. Like that's when you're going to, you're going to know what the impact that you made was. Yeah, I mean, can, the, I think that it's important, like as a yogi, the more, the more that I understand about the path of yoga um, is I actually think that it's, I don't think that we should be, I'll speak for myself, I don't think I need to be worried about what my impact is. And I don't think I need to worry about who I'm affecting and how great of an impact I'm having because that so quickly leads to, I mean, in yogic terms, like a sense of I-ness, like that, that I know this and I am creating this and I am affecting these people. And um, I know this is strangely esoteric, but, but the, for me, the practice of yoga is, is removing as much as possible, removing those constructs and removing those concepts of myself. And when I find myself thinking like, what do I want to do in the world and what change can I create? I have to recognize in myself like um, that I am creating those ideas of self 
and I am creating, I'm even separating myself from others in order to affect change upon them. And I am separating myself from the world in order to affect it. And um, in my understanding of, of the practices of yoga, those, those um, mental habits need to be explored. And it's more important for me to explore those within myself than it is for me to do something like uh, affect change in the world. Or, uh-huh. Yeah, I and mean, they kind of happen, I think they happen synonymously, but as a yoga practitioner, um, you know, I feel that same way too. Like when you say, I want to do this, well, like, what do you mean by I? And why do you, why does that I want it? Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, are, those are the subtler practices. And I think, um, of course, there are, like you're saying, of course, there is action that comes from that. Of course, there is change that comes from that. Of course, maybe those things affect other people. But um, as, a, as a yoga, you know, as a yoga practitioner, as a yogi trying to look at those things, those become more and more the questions. I think you can't can't talk about affecting change without also recognizing that the idea of affecting change is a completely anti-yogic idea, (laughs) you know, and it doesn't make one better than the other. But I think that you have to you have to hold them both in your hand at the same time so that you don't get carried away with one of them. Yeah. Good questions to be asking for sure. And I think it ultimately comes down to intention and constant self-inquiry. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And when you, when you try to hold those things and then you look at, um, what's happening kind of beyond that, it's almost like you have to live in two worlds. I think like there's this world of constant self-inquiry and then there's this human world, right? Where like, well, you have to make a living, you have to do something with your time, you have you like you that's just what this human world is and so you sort of have to navigate both of those okay well now seems as good a time as any to move on to what i call the prana round so this will be a little different since we've got two of you here um i guess i'll have you both answer but i have six rapid fire questions and i ask you to answer in minimum one word maximum one sentence that makes sense yep Okay. First of all, in one word, why do you practice yoga? Uh, Clarity. Spirit. Clarity and spirit. Okay. What's your favorite yoga pose and why? High lunge because of the uh, release in the hip flexors. Samasana, which is just a, a medium level cross-legged position uh, because that is the position in which I do all my pranayama and meditation. Aha, tricky answer. I like that. Okay. What's the single best cue or piece of advice you've ever received from a teacher? I know this one. Um, Tony Sanchez told us, well, the advice is Ida was like one sentence only. <laughs> Tony Sanchez t- told us, um, as you um, as you practice, there are other things. There are things that you've been practicing your whole life that you will have to leave behind, and you need to find new practices. He said, "This is called progress." Mm. Mine right. is relax your face. <laughs> I, I like that one too. I like relax your face. Okay. Recommend one book, modern or ancient for our audience, obviously, um, outside of all of your books, which I will link in the show notes. Okay. I'm going to go with the untethered soul. Michael Singer, right? Yep. Yeah. It's a little outside classical yoga, but I think it's uh, a good way in for people. From Science to God, and I can't recall the name of the author. We'll find it. Yeah. Okay. Is yoga for everyone? Some version of it is. 
I agree. Agreed. Okay. Last question. How can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your work? Well, uh, we would like to support all of you guys in your work. Um, first of all, um, but more about what we're doing at goshyoga.org, G H O S H yoga.org and, um, social media at goshyoga. Yeah. And please do not try to support us in our work. <laughs> the only, the best way you can support us is by practicing. Yeah. There is, do not direct your energy toward us. Um, direct your energy toward your own practice. Awesome. I love it. Scott, Ida, it's been a pleasure to have you guys on. Um, I learned a lot. I think our, our listeners will have learned a lot too. And I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Henry, for doing this and all your work. You're, you're really uh, such a leader and inspiration to a lot of people. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Henry. If you got something out of this episode, if you like Dharma Talk and want to keep it going, please do me a huge favor and subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. I know it's not the most convenient thing to do, but it makes all the difference in getting the show out there and more visible to other people who can benefit from it. And hey, if you've got feedback or ideas or you want to get in touch with me, you can do that on Instagram at Henry Wins. Otherwise, I'll talk to you next week. And until then, keep living your dharma.